This is Commercial Real Estate Secrets. I'm your host, Aviva. I'm a commercial real estate owner, broker, and your guide to low vacancy and high returns. Commercial Real Estate Secrets is at the intersection of real estate and reality, where the high-stakes world of brick and mortar meet the digital age. Ready to build your empire? This is Commercial Real Estate Secrets. This week's Listener of the Week is 1031 Tim. 1031 Tim, thank you so much for leaving us a five-star review. And for those of you listening, if you leave us a five-star review below, you might be next week's Listener of the Week. Week, week. This week on Commercial Real Estate Secrets, we have Ian Horowitz. Hey, Ian, thanks for being on the show. Yep, I'm excited to be on it. That was the most awesome intro. Like, it's like throwback to like the radio days, I guess, when we were all young. It's, it's sad to say that, you know, when we were young, that's the radio days, but that's what it reminded me of. That's awesome. Uh, I like to throw it back, try to take the, the fun parts and see how recyclable they are. So stand yeah. by. Uh, Ian, tell, tell me and the viewers who you are and what brings you here today on Commercial Real Estate Secrets. Yeah. Hey, what's up, uh, guys? My name's Ian Horowitz with Equity Warehouse. We're based out of Baltimore, Maryland, over here on the East Coast. And uh, we have a heavy concentration in self-storage and multifamily. Um, and happy to talk to you guys how we've gone from being two broke firemen for the city of Baltimore all the way to uh, owning and operating almost a nine-figure portfolio. So, so you started as a firefighter, and it sounds like you were a fi- with your partner as well. Yep. H- yep how did yep. that all begin? Yeah. Uh, so me and my business partner and I, we grew up outside of Philadelphia. We were volunteer firemen and just had a passion for it and just wanted to do it. And uh, Philadelphia, you had to live in the city to even take the test. And it just wasn't an option for either of us. A couple of our friends got hired down in Baltimore. They said, come take the test. And off we went. And, you know, if you ever watch The Wire, that's where we worked. If you watch the riots that happened, that's where we worked. We worked in the heart of West Baltimore. Um, got hired in 07 and 08, respectively. At the core wow. value of the job, it's a beautiful job. But 07 and 08, when we got hired, by the end of 09, we're working a government job, right? Like, you work a government job in exchange for security. And we're getting furloughed. They're changing our pension system. Pension systems are going broke all over the country. And I was like, dude, this is not sustainable. Um, And, you know, for whatever reason, uh, my wife decided she wanted to have kids and all that fun stuff. And I was like, (laughs) oh, I can't say no to this. And um, so long story short, you know, it was just a culmination of things. And, you know, seeing guys that were working 30, 40, 50 years and just working till they're basically dead, they get their pension. That's it. I'm like, dude, this can't be real life, man. And look, I loved what we did. I loved helping people, but I knew there was a better way. And luckily, because there was no overtime, pension systems going bankrupt, healthcare issues, all these other things, I bought my first rental property in 2012. And off we went, man. That was That's how we ended up in real estate. Nothing. I, I tell people, we were lucky that we got hired when we did and had so much drama around the job of all these issues that forced our hand to go find a different way to make a living. Wow. Uh, So this is a conversation I have with one of my best friends all the time about real estate. And you said something that makes me want to ask you it. 
do you believe being a landlord is helping people in, in the way that you were a firefighter and you're passionate about helping people? Do you feel renting people space helps them out? Yes, that's a very fair question because we actually got our start in subsidized housing. And I don't, I don't want to make this politics, but I, I'm on one side of the, the, the field and, you know, people would say, oh, why would you rent to subsidize? That kind of goes against what you believe in. And I said, but yeah, people still need, like people still need quality housing to live in. And one of the things that really changed my outlook on it was my second tenant. His name was Reginald Carroll. And I got him from prisoner aid. And I said, man, Mr. Reggie, whenever I come to your house, it's so clean. He's like, yeah, you live in an eight by eight cell. You will appreciate anything you get. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I said, I wish you could tell some of our other tenants of how lucky they are to be in this situation, to have the help to maybe get to the next level. But it also brought attention. There's good people, whether they pay cash or subsidized. There's bad people, whether they pay cash or subsidized. It's the same in the commercial world. It doesn't matter where you are. There's good in people on either side of it. And if you do the right thing, eventually the good tenants or the good people, the good vendors will come and find you. And I 100% believe in providing quality housing to people. You know, we would leave our houses and literally say, if I just got out of the fire academy and like I had to live here, I would. Like that's always how we looked at it. We weren't trying just to, you know, carpet out of a can and painting floors and seeing what we could get away with it. Yeah, sure. The first few houses we might not have done it completely right because we didn't know, not because we were trying to screw some someone over. And as you know, we paid for those mistakes a couple of years later. But you know what? That's just that's what you got to do to get started and. I agree with you. I, I think doing the right thing and providing housing is truly helping someone if you're doing it for the right reasons. You know, I uh, I agree. I've heard, you know, uh, a land, being a landlord is evil. I've seen that comment a million times. And those are people who haven't, you know, we, we rent small bay warehousing. So we deal with a lot of people, startup businesses, people out of their garages, people out of storage facilities. And when you have a, a couple and they have brought their four children to the U. So we have the family of six staring at you, thanking you for taking a chance and renting the, your space to them. It really changes your perspective from that evil landlord to like, oh, wow, we're actually providing someone with an opportunity to better their lives, better themselves. And um, oftentimes it's those tenants who go on to rent bigger units, eventually buy their own property. And uh, that feels even better. So it's not all evil, specifically when you're actually in the trenches talking to Reggie or talking to the family who is there to make a name for, or, you know, it, to make, yeah. Yeah, and if you're doing it right, you're going to get, you're going to get monetarily rewarded for doing the right thing. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be a charity case and, help everyone out like there was a big debate on doing collection calls on our storage facilities should we do it around christmas and i said all right i agree with you let's not do it from the 21st 23rd till about the 26th or 27th just shut it down we don't need to be those people but they equally have a responsibility to pay their rent as much as we have a responsibility to our investors to collect that rent so it's a two-way street and i think there's Somewhere out there, and I know the world has become so divisive, uh, somewhere in the middle, business and helping people can live together and 
we can get paid and they can get what they want and it's it's a magic uh what is that um in uh in harmony right we can all live together or synonymously whatever it is and everybody gets what they need but our premise has always been put the property first if you put the property first you'll attract the right tenants uh and we were dealing very early on in our careers with subsidized housing and it was like, all right, well, if we put together a nice product, we'll get the best of the best of those tenants, and that will ultimately reward us later on. And what we found out as we went into multifamily, again, like I said earlier, there's bad people, and it doesn't matter if they're paying cash or they're subsidized. It, it Bad actors come out, and it just comes out in the wash naturally. So you've talked about self-storage. You've talked about multifamily. Your hat says warehousing. What is the asset type that you all work on? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you do? What does a day look like? Um, you know, I wish I knew what my day was sometimes. Uh, what, what I want my day to be and what they are sometimes. But no, honestly, what we invest in, we look at self-storage and um, multifamily is our primary asset classes that we're attracted to that we operate in. Uh, but what I like to tell people is we're opportunistic investors. We've ran the gamut. We've done single family. We've done fix and flips. We've wholesaled. We've, we've done a little bit of everything to get where we are today. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, everyone says just do one thing and do it right. And I said, yeah, we did one thing right for a long time. We operated in the single family house space and cut our teeth, got our butts whooped, built a hundred house portfolio, flipped over a hundred houses. We grinded it out to build our systems to now allow us to be opportunistic investors. And to me, as you're moving along, you know, it's a tool in the toolbox. I mean, people wholesale commercial assets. Well, we've utilized that tactic, right? That's not just a single family tactic. We've done mm -hmm. owner financing deals, not only in the single family space, but one of the biggest multifamily deals we've done, a $5 million deal was an owner finance deal at 90%, right? So again, it's just tools in the toolbox all the way through to allow us to operate in the different asset classes and then expand on those verticals, put the right people in place and allow them to do what uh, each vertical needs to do to produce the income to support itself. You know, I, uh, I agree. I feel like uh, in real estate, as long as you're doing something, it's always pushing you forward to, it's it's like you said, it's a tool in the tool belt and everything applies eventually, right? Something might feel like a waste of time today that in five years, you know, you might get that call or you might use that strategy and it comes into fruition. So that's the gangster thing about real estate. Uh, and if you play the long game, you get rewarded. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And that's why rental real estate's the best, right? Like doing the fix and flip, there's something about getting that cash. It feels good, right? Like we all need cash to invest, invest into long-term assets and our passive income outgrows the active income. Uh, but I agree a hundred percent. I mean, you know, it's, it's the long game. And if you stay, if you, if you're in real estate long enough, you will have your wins. You will be able to get to that point. Totally. You know, I, I sold a storage facility in 2023 and it was, a. uh, hell of a deal for uh, many reasons that I won't go into. But something I noticed overwhelmingly was that A, when I put that thing on the market, people came out of the woodworks from every inch of the country to buy self-storage. And then B, what I found was a lot of these folks were 
people with multifamily assets who saw that self-storage was almost like the, it's like the, it's like the multifamily of housing where it's these small units where you store whatever you store, uh, but you don't have a toilet that could break. You don't have a stove that could break. Uh, what do you like? Do you like? Uh, look, uh, I know a lot of people say multifamily can be some of the hardest assets to manage. Uh, do you find any parallels or differences between multifamily and self storage that way? Yeah. So uh, I like the question, and I'll maybe reframe it just a little bit. Like, what's the big difference? What What is the attraction to self storage? The attraction is, again, I just please leave politics out of it. Everyone thinks I'm very like divisive, but I'm not is COVID exposed everything that's going on in the world, right? I'm in a very, very, very blue state, a very, very, very blue city. So COVID happens. Okay, cool. Hey, there's all this rental assistance money. Cool. Well, here we submitted all our information. Oh, we're not releasing it yet. Okay. So the tenant doesn't have to pay, but you haven't released the tenant protection money to pay for the rent. And I can't evict them. So it's like, I, I, what, what are you supposed to do? You're, you were handcuffed. And what happened in the industrial space, as you probably know, big big companies just came and said, I'm not paying my landlord. It's like, wait, 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 what? Like, just stop paying on their leases. What happened inside self-storage is <laughs> lean laws, that's how we operate to get people out of the units, never <laughs> stopped. California for like an wow. hour said, yeah, you can't do any more auctions. And that lasted all of like two seconds and it was shut down almost immediately and business was normal. The other part about self-storage is we can automate it. Like we're in ba- wow. our main office is in Baltimore, Maryland. Our assets are in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Arkansas, all in states that are pro-business, right? Which I like. Side by side with that, we were still able to operate and we were able to operate autonomously from up here. We have a call center right? We have people, people move in and out all the time. Like it was, that's, we had a little technical difficulty before the episode. I got caught up looking at a report because I love looking at the move-ins and move-outs that just happen online every day. Like we've already had 20 move-ins and however many move-outs in the first two days of the month, like things are transacting all the time. And that was really the big difference. Now the comparison to multifamily, sure, it's similar, right? Like there's ancillary fees. You got a, you got multiple units, offsets income. So if you're 50% occupied, but you're getting the highest rates, it's better than being 100% occupied with the lowest rates, right? Like there's, there's so many similarities to multifamily without the drama of having a tenant who's living there. And we all know if you've been, ever done any residential space, that tenant always tells you what, oh, this is my house. Okay, cool. Thank you for taking ownership. But you called for a service call. Can I come in and fix it? No, this is my house. You got to schedule the time. It's like, well, wait, wait a second. It's my property. You told me that there's a water leak or there's no heat or there's some sort of issue. I'm here to fix it, but you won't let me in the house, right? So in the storage game, someone has a broken door. You can transfer them to another unit. It's not an emergency. You secure their property. A light goes out at the facility. You don't want it to be out forever. Not the end of the world. There is not as many emergencies as there are when someone is living in your unit all the time. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, the emergencies are a funny thing that I think about when I apply to, and just think about different asset classes. I have a 
friend who I work with whose family has a ton of retail. And you talk about an emergency in a warehouse over the weekend is not an emergency in a restaurant over the weekend. A hundred percent. It's uh, it's just funny and it's not funny. It's a <laughs> nuance of our <laughs> It business. is definitely the nuance. And then like when you have an Airbnb or two, cause you're like, oh, that sounded like fun way back in the day. But that is like the highest level of service. And everyone's like, oh, this is the best business. I'm just gonna go right. I'm like, dude, that is the highest level of service. You are in a hotel. You are in a customer service-based business. We're in a customer service-based business in self-storage, but usually it's only at the time of sale. After that, it's like, hey, you rent your metal box. It's kind of like the industrial space. Rent your metal box, and there's an issue in your metal box. There's not much to fix, but I'll be out at some point to fix your metal box. And that's really what it comes down to. And it, that's why I like self-storage, just because that emergent issue comes off the plate. It allows you to invest further outside of your area, you know, and that was one of our theses behind investing outside of the Baltimore metro area was I don't want someone living in an apartment unit in Oklahoma and I'm responsible where I have to rely on a third party property manager to manage that because in Baltimore, we had just a lot of trauma around the single family space of how to operate in Baltimore. It's a very, very special place at least to us anyway. Hmm. And we just knew that we didn't want to get into residential outside of our jurisdictional area. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, it's yeah. a, the laws are a trip. Specifically. Yeah, well, and, you know, they're always changing. I mean, look, the nuances inside of storage are usually on a state level. Like there's a state storage association. They have lobbyists that go and negotiate, hey, this is how lien laws are going to work. This is how you can communicate with tenants. And like, that's it. You don't have to worry about being in Baltimore City and then there's some reform that comes out. And like in Baltimore City, like it takes me forever to get an eviction because now there's mediation that I got to go through. There's all these notices that I have to do. It's not, yo, you're late on the 5th. I can file on the 6th. It's you're late on the 5th. Then I got to notify you by the 10th. Then after the 10th, I got to wait two weeks to say that I tried calling you. Then I got to have a mediation. Then I can finally evict you. But by the time I evict you, it's like four months later, I've lost all that rent versus in storage. It's in Mississippi, 30 days. You don't pay your rent by the, uh, I think it's the 10th. I got to go and look at it. I'm going to put myself into a corner. But I can tell you, in 30 days, if you don't pay your rent, you're done. Day five, I lock you out. Day 10, you're getting a, a lien notice. Day whatever, you're getting posted for an auction. On day 30, if I wanted to be that aggressive, you don't pay your rent, you're gone. Same thing with Texas. Same thing with Louisiana. Uh, Arkansas, where we operate, is like 75 days. But still, wow. there's a process, and you know exactly what it is. There's no, I'm going to go file rent escrow. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go get the BS lawyer off the side of the street to come rep- represent me pro bono and throw some kind of BS at you. Can you talk about some trauma around residential real estate? Um, and really <laughs> jams you up. So that's why I, I think, you know, look, storage, industrial assets, warehousing space, you know, more B2B type stuff is is much more transactional. Everyone has a vested interest. There's a business behind it. Um, and I, I agree with you 100%. Sorry, I went on a, a tangent. I can't help myself, but that is, uh, that's you know, that's how I feel today. Well, no, no, yeah. Eh, I think it's valuable. And, sure. you know, speaking of evictions, I know evictions are at all-time highs right now. When you are syndicating deals... How do you mitigate your risk for yourself and your investors while you're doing the due diligence process? 
Um, yeah. Uh, well, for self-storage for us, you know, we never underwrite to the top of the market. You know, we like to be mid-tier market. We know the asset that we're bringing out. We stay mid-tier. There's been a massive retraction retraction in rents. Uh, we also hmm. underwrite to make sure we're not getting to 95% occupancy. We're looking at 85 to 90% occupancy. We're not laying in fees. Now on the multifamily side of things, it's a similar it's a similar product type, right? Like we like to be that B class, you know, high C, getting into a B, stay right mid tier, um, and just you know not being super aggressive with rates. That's really how you can mitigate the downside. Now with storage, we've we've always looked at it from a replacement cost standpoint. That I know if I can get it below replacement cost, I can always sell it for more, just because someone's like, hey, like you know, you got it below replacement cost. They can't build it for the same price that you got it. Um, there's always some sort of delta there as well. Will you explain what replacement cost is for the viewers? Yeah. So if you had to go out and build a new property, so for like, so for us right now, you could probably build like a drive up type storage facility, not the big class A's. I'm just talking about like a standard drive up, you know, you're, you're building them anywhere from, I don't know. The building's going to cost you before land acquisition cost 40 to I'd say 35 to 50 bucks a foot depending on what market you're in. So if you can buy that property sub 40 a foot, right? Let's just use a round number like our acquisitions were in the 30 to 45 dollar foot range. Well, we got the land for free, right? And if you go in there and you're able and you look at it from that standpoint, it's like, well, nobody's going to build against you. It's too expensive to build against you. And, you know, you're buying it below replacement cost. And most people look at that and say, okay, well, that's one metric I can live off of. So if you've bought it under that and you can sell it at par, then you've won, right? And land value is a huge thing here because some of these assets, and I don't know how it is for you and your industrial, there's some covered land plays, right? Like we might have a storage facility that has great frontage that the best use in a few years might not be self-storage. It might be the next hot spot in town. It might be um, the new multifamily spot that, you know, you've made a really good buy because you got your land for free. So that's kind of how, that's like our backup. That's my initial metric. And then I go in and really underwrite it like, okay, let's pull all the levers. And then I come back and look at it from that standpoint as like a stopgap measure to say, are we making a good buy? Because we all know you build something new, people are attracted to new uh, and you could potentially rent better than the old facility around the corner. So that's kind of how we look at it and play the two against each other. Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, I told you I sold that storage facility last year. It was a land play. It was a yep. land play with income in place until that wrecking ball comes. And that's a cool thing. Something I love about industrial and storage is the footprint that it actually takes up. You know, something like an office building where they build up. I mean, there's a million reasons why office doesn't make sense, but I love industrial uses because of the footprint that they occupy. Yeah. And, the, and really the, the, I mean, if you look at industrial and storage, they're, they're similar to an extent, right? You know, I'm dealing on month to month leases. You're dealing on, you know, super long-term leases sometimes. Right. But what I would say is there's so many uses for it, right? Like industrial, you know, let's, you know, small bay flex, like you can get everything from a garage band to a screen printing press to a granite company. Well, it's the same thing for us. We have e-com businesses that rent storage units. Like we're actually, I was just down in Baton Rouge at one of our sites, ran into a guy, we got talking to him. I said, what do you do? He's like, oh, I work for energy. I said, 
He's that they're a subcontractor to energy and all they do is inspect power lines and he keeps all the chemicals. He's like, I rent a storage facility in each location every 50 miles and I put the chemicals there so the guys can run back. He's like, there's no point in wow. me running an industrial space because it's too expensive. And then when the contract's over, I shut it down. I was like, oh shit. Like that makes so, sorry, I didn't mean to curse, but it makes so much sense. Um, you know, because with you, right, like you're locked in. And I think that's what's cool is like, there's so many opportunities like RV parking, small businesses that might need a location to rent, the family member that need, you know, needs to store something. Like there's so many uses for storage. We had another uh, at a site, we had, uh, not Tasty Cake, Little Debbie, uh, sorry, Tasty Cake's a Philly thing. Little Debbie, um, they would come in, they would deliver the tractor trailer to all the storage units and then all the vendors, they rent they rented 15 units. Well, then all the vendors vendors rented another 15 units because they kept their vans there. And then the truck would come in at 2:30 in the morning. They would come in and load their vans up. And then they would service all the convenience stores in Louisiana and Mississippi from our facility in Baton Rouge. <laughs> and it was a really cool thing because they're like, well, nobody offers 24-hour access. Nobody has the availability to have 18 wheelers come in here and little Debbie like, or yeah, little Debbie likes it. Cause if we need another unit, we can get one. If we need to consolidate, we can consolidate. Right. Like, and that's, I think what, uh, mm. the benefit of industrial and storage is the flexibility in what you're renting. You can only rent an apartment to really one type of use, right? Like you're going to live there or you're not right. And that's it. Like there's no other, that's it. That's all you got. You got nothing else. So. I was talking to an owner this week and he said, well, what about a big, a 40,000 square foot warehouse? He said, well, what kind of use could you put in there? And I said, you don't need to worry about the uses that are going into these buildings. I placed a woman in 7,500 square feet last year who sells individual Legos online and crushes it. If really? You, if you were to tell me that I would place the Lego lady in 7,500 square feet, right? Like, like the, the uses, like you said, are so vast, so broad, so creative construction, e-commerce trades. It's endless. Uh, there's not enough inventory for this space. Don't worry about who's going in there. Yeah. You, you know, worry, worry about getting your rents to where they need to be for you to sell. Yeah. This thing. Well, that's, that's <laughs> the biggest thing. I just wish the banks would lend on like, Hey, don't worry. If I build it, they would come. Um, but you know, that's just, that's a great part about storage, right? Like just to make some comparisons, we operate in three to five mile sub markets. So it's really easy to aggregate the data. Like if we know that, um, growth is going out that way, we see the big track home builders going a certain way. It's like, well, all right. I know there's, there's rooftops check mark for me. I operate in a three to five mile radius income numbers, everything else. Well, yeah, if I build it, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to fill it up. You know, I know industrial, maybe it's a little bit harder to do some of the feasibility stuff, but for us, it's easy because we operate in just three, three to five mile sub markets. And that is it. And that's why everyone says, man, I see storage facilities going up everywhere. I said, yeah, because it's underserved. Uh, the three to five mile metric with this, you know, seven to 10 square feet per person, that number's real and they will fill up if you can find the right opportunities and there's a lot of growth to be had. I love it. Uh, so let me ask you, what is currently, and this is kind of a, I'm just going to ask you, what is currently making you happy in real estate 
today and for 2024. Yeah, you know what's making me happy is, you know, we finally get to a lot of people see where we are today and but this is a culmination of the fruits of our labor for the past 10 years and really seeing what we built, where we've gone and what we've done. You know, we have 15 employees now. Um, you know, some of our employees come from the recovery space, so we get to help them out. Um, you know, and it's just it's been like really impactful and you know, well growth like I have personal selfish goals to get to a certain dollar amount of real estate. That's not really what it's about more anymore. It's more about like, Hey team, like, do you guys want to buy another property because you guys want to grow, right? Like we're all in this together. And I think that's the really cool part. So, you know, what motivates me is really making sure that our team is taken care of and successful and seeing how much they've grown as people uh, building families. I mean, when we look at it, it's 15 employees, but there's probably, man, there's probably 40 family members amongst that 15 people. And it's just like, it's wild to see that the people that rely on us. And I know that's like, I kind of ducked the question maybe, but that's really what's been motivating me as of recently is, you know, pouring back into our personnel and our growth is going to be related to how much they want to do um, and how much they want to grow side by side with us. And it's not just about Dan and myself. It's about the company as a whole. Hey, uh, it's kind of like that initial question is being a landlord evil or does, or, you know, is being a landlord helping people? And I think it's really easy to point at real estate or point at being a landlord and just saying, uh, you're greedy. It's all about the money. And it's like, yeah, that's a, a benefit of the industry, but there's so much more to it and so much growth that you can give to your tenants and your employees and your partners. And it's cool to share, literally share the wealth that way. Yeah. And you know, the fact that we're able to give like shares into our deals now to some of our employees, like that's powerful watching those deals finally turn over. That's powerful, you know, but I think one thing that if there's a takeaway from this is that not enough people treat their real estate investing careers like a business, right? You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I just got a collection of properties and that's it. And then they're running around with their heads cut off and then they get hair like me and it's a, <laughs> it's just a mess, right? Like, you know, it's rather than taking the time and building out the team and spending a little money, putting the right people in place and treating it like a business and knowing your numbers, like we could not have this team or this portfolio if we did not treat it like a business. And in real time, that shit sucked. Like just straight up. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Like that sucked in real time. Like we didn't know how we were going to afford Ryan, our number one employee that we, you know, that we hired and he's turned out to be an all-star. We had no clue how we were going to pay for him. We were paying him more than we were earning in the fire department at the time. Like mind blowing crap to us. And my, I remember my wife just being like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, I'm not, uh, this is what we need to do to grow. Um, but those are the things by doing those really, really uncomfortable things, we get to enjoy them today and hopefully for the future and generations to come, uh, we'll be able to enjoy the sacrifices that we made in real time at those times. So That's cool. Hey, that's what real estate's all about. Yep. And so my last question, if today was your first day in real estate and you could take what you've learned in your time in the biz, what would you teach yourself? Day one. Um, it's really good. What would I teach myself day one is it'd probably be more mindset than anything. 
is that, you know, hey, like, go swing the bat, go do it, um, you know, and push on. I, I didn't, there wasn't much time that I wasted at the beginning, but I would really say that's what I would teach myself, you know, obviously. And then side by side with that, you know, wearing your heart on your, you know, sleeve, like being able to go out and talk to people and raising capital earlier and trusting yourself, betting on yourself earlier is really what I would teach myself. It'd mostly be mindset stuff that I would go back and tell myself because we knew it in real time, but there was a lot of like, you know, chicken arms, like just kind of dip it in. Cause you're like, Oh, this feels so good. And then you're like, I don't know if this is right. But then looking back on it, you're like, damn, I was so right there. Like I should have poured in. Um, so that's really what it would have been is just, you know, I would, I'd probably go back and tell myself, bet on yourself, man, you know what you're doing, go do this and, and let's go. So you, you wouldn't believe how many people I ask that question to, and they have an iteration of the same thing. Like, just do it. Just yep. trust yourself. Uh, just get to work. <laughs> yep. so. well, you, can't hit the home, like, you can't hit the home run if you're not on base. Like, you can't hit a grand slam if you're not on base, right? Like, and that's, that's always how I kind of related to it, is like get in the game, swing the bat. Oh, listen, hopefully if you have a strikeout, like it's a swinging strikeout and you're not going to lose money, right? Or you're going to get on base. And if you can get on base and you can score some runs and eventually you're going to hit a grand slam. Not every deal is going to be a grand slam. Just hit singles, dude. And like if we look back at what we did, we did single family houses over and over and over again. And we just kept doing it until we got it right. Mostly because we were, some of it was because we were scared to go to the next quote unquote level but a lot of it was just refining process, just doing it over and over and over again to get really good at it, to allow us to grow to where we are today. So I agree a hundred percent. Uh, yeah. Hey, everybody wants that immediate gratification. And I don't know if anything in life is really, really gives it, uh, the, not the good stuff at least. So yeah, yeah, no, not, not, not <laughs> if you want real true happiness, like you'd be gratified if you jump on social media, make a post and tell everyone something, but what does that like? What does that do, man? Like, do the right again. Do the right thing, and work towards what you want. And if you do what's right, you will be rewarded at some point. In real time, it might suck all the way through, but at some <laughs> point, you are going to get rewarded. Whether it's financially, it's personally, whatever it is, whatever you're looking for, you will find that reward. Awesome. Well, Ian, for the listeners who want to learn more about you or from your work, where can they listen to you or follow you or get in touch with you? Yeah. Best place you can find us is on equitywarehouse.com. Uh, we have some case studies on how our friends and family co-invest and co-lend with us. Uh, that's the best place to really learn about what we do. Um, I communicate the most on Instagram at equity warehouse at equity underscore warehouse. Um, if you shoot me a DM, I communicate the most on there and Honestly, we're out on all the social sites. You'll see us out there chirping. You know, if you want to find us, we're out there and uh, happy to talk to anyone that's trying to take that next step. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ian, for being on Commercial Real Estate Secrets. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ready to shatter your glass ceiling while creating legacy and financial freedom? Head to my show notes for our free guide, How to Get Started in Commercial Real Estate.